Welcome to episode six of the Inside Elections podcast, where we analyze elections in a nonpartisan, data-driven, and accessible way. This episode is all about the fight for the House. Which party is best positioned to win the majority? Where are the toss-up races? The 10 races with the recent rating changes? And where did Republicans recently recruit a NASCAR driver to race across the finish line? Buckle up. I'm Nathan Gonzalez, and I enjoy vacationing in Florida's 11th district. Yes, that's Disney World. <laughs> I'm Erin Covey, um, and I really love the Blue Ridge Mountains, which is several congressional districts. So it stretches like from North Carolina's 11th district all the way up to Virginia's 6th district. We might have to do that uh, again when we get North Carolina districts for the fifth time this decade. I know. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> and I'm Jacob. It's the Asheville region. That's all that matters. <laughs> I'm Jacob Rubashkin. And like the president, I enjoy going to the beaches of Delaware, uh, which has its own at-large congressional district. Well, I, I should clarify that it's not really a vacation when you're taking four kids to Disney. It's more like a trip. Your your destinations sound far more relaxing than what mine than mine. Yeah, you should be fairly compensated. Before we get to our big topic, let's do a few headlines. Aaron, why don't you start? Yeah, so another major candidate has announced they're running in the race to succeed Colin Allred, who, in case you haven't heard, is running against Ted Cruz in the Senate race in Texas. So the new candidate is Democratic State Representative Retta Bowers, who announced her campaign a couple of days ago. And I thought it was interesting. Her announcement video actually took a veiled shot at the front runner in the race right now, who is another state representative in Texas, Julie Johnson. So I think this is shaping up to be a pretty heated primary. Um, and whoever wins the Democratic primary for this district, which is based in Dallas, will almost certainly win the general election. So that's going to be the race to watch. Yeah, usually candidates avoid kind of uh, sparring early on. But yeah, that's yeah. that's interesting. Uh, Jacob, what what should we not miss? So Virginia Congresswoman Jennifer Wexton, who represents part of Northern Virginia, announced this week that uh, she has a more aggressive form of Parkinson's disease than she had uh, previously thought. She announced her initial diagnosis earlier this year, uh, and she will not seek a fourth term in Congress. Uh, that means her 10th district will be an open seat next year. Democrats shouldn't have any problem holding this seat which has really bolted away from Republicans over the past decade. Uh, but there could be a large and messy primary on the Democratic side to determine their nominee. Uh, however, with everyone focused on the local elections going on in Virginia this fall, this November, for the General Assembly, uh, it's likely that uh, everyone's going to wait until after those races are completed to turn their attention to the 10th district race. Do we think Hung Cow is going to drop down from the Senate race and run again here? <sighs> I think that there will probably be some level of effort to try and get him to do so. But, um, you know, I, I think, look, the, the reality is uh, Virginia statewide is actually uh, 
better for Republicans by partisanship than uh, the 10th congressional district. So even though Cal fell just a few points short against Wexton last year, uh, from a political angle, it might actually uh, be a little bit easier for him to win statewide. Of course, you know, relatively speaking, it's very difficult for a Republican to win statewide in Virginia these days. Yeah. And even though we're obviously a nonpartisan podcast, I think it's okay to say that our prayers are with the Congresswoman and it brings a, a humanity to this. I think as we cover elections, it can be sometimes maybe we can treat it as a game too much, but these are real people with real lives and, and sometimes real um, you know, medical issues that they're dealing with. And so I, I think this is a, a good a good reminder of that. Yeah, there was a really moving story in the Washington Post in which Wexton, you know, discussed her diagnosis at length that I recommend everyone listening go check out. Yeah. And uh, the other piece of news that uh, people shouldn't miss is that um, you Republican Senator Mitt Romney of Utah decided not to seek a second term. Uh, it's it doesn't it doesn't alter the fight for the Senate because Republicans are, are very likely to hold the seat. But it is an important development because uh, Romney was one of the few Republican uh, critics of former President Donald Trump on Capitol Hill. So uh, his voice being absent will be uh, will be notable. Uh, the Republican field to replace Romney is still taking shape. We'll we'll talk more about that in the future. But, uh, you know, Mitt Romney uh, on his way out uh, on his way out of Congress. The Inside Elections podcast is sponsored by George Washington University's Graduate School of Political Management, or GSPM. The GSPM program offers master's degrees in legislative affairs and political management with in-person and online schedules designed for the working professional. Uh, I was a beneficiary of that schedule because I was working full-time for the Rothenberg Political Report, writing and reporting and analyzing races and doing GSPM classes at night. It took me two years, uh, two full years, so year-round, spring, fall, and winter to get my degree, um, but I'm, I'm happy that I got my master's. Uh, so click on the link below and check out what the GSPM program has to offer. Let's dive into our big topic, the fight for the House. NBC News is projecting that Republicans will control the House for the next two years after winning enough seats to have a majority in the chamber. Latest on the midterms, Republicans have taken back control of the House of Representatives, bringing back divided government to Washington. They'll have a slim majority, but likely to be enough to block much of President Biden's agenda. That was a trip down memory lane to 2022 when Republicans gained nine seats to capture the majority and eventually elect Kevin McCarthy as speaker. Now Democrats are in the minority and need a net gain of five seats to get back to control. That's not very many out of 435. So, but first, before we dive into individual races, let's focus on the big picture. A little more than 13 months from election day, does either party have an advantage in the fight for the majority? Aaron, you, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's a difficult question right now, especially so far out from the election. Um, but I think one thing that's notable is unlike the Senate map in which Democrats control almost all of the vulnerable Senate seats that are up for re-election, the House battleground is pretty evenly divided. And you'll see that in our ratings, too. We have 68 competitive races. 35 of those are Republican held. 
33 of those are Democratic held. And then in terms of the solid Republican and solid Democratic races, there are 182 solid Republican seats and 171 solid Democratic seats. So it's a pretty evenly split field. It's really going to depend on who wins those toss-up races. We have 11 toss-ups right now, and we'll go into a little more detail talking about those races individually. But I think at this point, obviously, the onus is on Democrats to um, net those five seats, but it's going to be a really close fight. Yeah. And 218 is the magic number uh, that either party needs. Jacob, what does either party, do you think either party has an advantage right now? Look, I think it's just so difficult, like Aaron said, to put that level of specificity on on a question like this 14 months before an election. I think both parties have some advantages. Both parties have some opportunities. Um, you know, uh, it, it's almost a philosophical question. Would you rather be Republicans and have more seats, right? They're in the majority. Um, all they need to do is hold serve in order to win, but they're defending in some pretty blue territory. Or would you rather be Democrats who have to uh, beat incumbents, right, in order to win, right? They're, they have to go out and do something that, you know, we know is difficult in politics to beat an incumbent. Um, you know, the, the one thing I would say, I guess the two things I would say is as our ratings stand now, uh, Republicans have a little bit of an advantage, right, just structurally more solid seats um, that that they can count on. And, and when North Carolina puts out their new maps, that number is probably going to grow, um, the other thing I would say on the opposite side of the ledger is, you know, we're looking at a, a Biden Trump rematch in 2024 at the presidential level. If you go back to 2020, I want to say that it was 222 House districts that voted for Biden um, and, and 213 that voted for Trump. While we know that that's not exactly how the House races are going to go. We also know that it's probably the best predictor of how the House races are going to go. Uh, so if if we just run a real repeat of that election with the same results or very similar results, Democrats might have a slight structural advantage themselves uh, on on these current districts. Right. And to me, that 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 presidential shadow is really looming over the whole fight for the house because i believe in 2020 only 16 districts i know we're throwing a lot of numbers out there but only 16 districts voted for a sep a different party for president than it did for for the house and so that again shows that strong correlation between what's happening at the top of the ballot and anyone that tells you they know for sure how a biden trump rematch is going to to work out with a an unpopular aging uh Democratic incumbent president against a former president who's been indicted four times and is only three and a half years younger than, than the current president. But anyone who tells you they know that that's going to work out, you know, going to work uh, is probably lying to you. And but that race matters when it comes to the fight for the House. Yeah. And I'll also add um, for anyone who's checking my math, we don't we haven't like Jacob said, we haven't rated any of the North Carolina districts. And that's because redistricting is still ongoing there for like the 25th time. Um, in that state. <laughs> and then we also have they just like to, they like to do it every every year. Let's I know. just redraw the map <laughs> every two they years. Need, they need other hobbies, just a fun activity for them. Um, but aside from North Carolina, we also have potentially pending maps in Alabama, maybe New York, maybe Georgia, maybe Louisiana. Um, and you'll see a lot of attention on these redistricting fights because it could come down to one or two seats, um, which is why the fact that Democrats are probably going to net a seat in Alabama and Republicans are probably going to net three seats in North Carolina is going to really matter for 2024. 
it's it's interesting that the when you talk, you know, we have been talking to Republican and Democratic strategists, the the, the real strategists that are working on the races, not the ones that you sometimes see on TV and you're not really <laughs> sure what races they're working on. Uh, but there is there's really a, a confidence that their nominee is going to perform at least as well as they did in 2020, if not better. You know, that that Biden, particularly against Trump, is going to do he's going to carry those same districts and maybe even do better uh, or or vice versa, or that Trump uh, is going to do at least as well as he did because Biden is in such a weakened position, according to according to Republicans. But I'm just not convinced that that's necessarily the case. I think both parties are walking into these elections with a higher level of risk and uh, the potential that their presidential nominee uh, you know that their support implodes, and that would have a dramatic in, uh, a dramatic impact on on the fight for the house. I mean, I you know we're not coming down and officially it doesn't. I don't think Republicans or Democrats have a specific a big advantage, but I think it's going to be very connected to the presidential the presidential outcome. And and look, I think that you know we saw in twenty twenty how quickly that can change. Right. I think if, if you went back to September of 2020, when it looked like Trump was dead in the water in the presidential race, the, the scope of House races that we thought were going to be in play was significantly wider than what ultimately uh, came to pass after Trump kind of rebounded during October uh, and heading into to November. And we ended up with a pretty narrow, uh, generally speaking, presidential election result. Uh, and and I think that there's there's a lot of data to suggest that a lot of people made up their mind in the presidential in, in the last couple of weeks of the race, and that choice then trickled down to how they voted uh, on the congressional ballot as well. So if it can change that much in two weeks, three weeks, and we've got 14 months <laughs> before uh, voters go to the polls, it, it just underlines the uncertainty here. Yeah, and we love the to get into the weeds on races, right? I mean, that's what we that's what we do uh, in every when we talk through these races again with strategists on both sides of the aisle. They are very confident that you know their incumbents or their challengers are going to overperform Biden or Trump, or they're excited that Doug Mastriano is not on the ticket in uh, this cycle in Pennsylvania, and everything's going to be better. But it's probably going to be a mixed bag, right? That Democrats. You know, are looking for that boost in California and New York, where they feel like they underperformed in uh, underperformed in the midterm elections. Republicans are looking for that boost in Pennsylvania, because from the midterms, because Mastriano is not running for governor on a ticket. So it's it it could be a mixed a mixed result, which then all adds up to another close fight for the House because every the margin the majority is so close and the margins are so few. Let's dive into some of those individual races. I'm John Duarte. I'm Mike Garcia. I'm Yadira Caravale. I'm Gabe Vasquez. I'm Anthony D'Esposito. I'm Mike Lawler. I'm Brandon Williams. I'm Lori Chavez-Dreamer. I'm Marie Perez, and I approve this message. Those are the members of Congress who represent nearly all of our 11 toss-up races. There's also the open seat in Michigan's 7th District, which, Aaron, you're writing about for the next issue of the newsletter. And uh, it did not include George Santos, which is his own uh, unique race. But which of those races uh, tells us most about what's going on nationally or is most interesting to you, Jacob? Well, look, I think the most interesting thing about this list is the kinds of states that are on it, right? Right off the bat, we've got seven states, uh, seven districts that are 
uh, either in New York or California, you know, states that we do not consider to be uh, competitive states at the presidential level, certainly, uh, or or at the statewide level in, in almost all cases, but they make up more than half of our toss-up category. You go down the list, California, Colorado, New Jersey, New Mexico, New York, Oregon, Washington. What do all these states have in common? They're all Biden states. They're all states that are generally considered democratic. I think Michigan is probably the most marginal of any of them. Um, and that's really, uh, it's really telling uh, about where Democrats are on offense, where Republicans are on defense, and and what kind of inroads Republicans made uh, in in the the uh, blue territory last cycle. I think these districts run the gamut. Um, obviously, uh, a district like Colorado eight or Michigan seven are probably the the two most evenly divided of our toss up races, just in terms of their overall partisanship. Uh, most of these seats, quite frankly, are, are Democratic leaning seats. They're seats that voted for uh, Joe Biden by as much as. 13, 14 points in the last election, last presidential election. But, you know, a seat like Colorado 8 is a is a very marginal seat, went for Biden by about four points. Democratic incumbent, she was only elected with about 48.3% of the vote, which is lower, I believe, uh, than the vote share of any other incumbent member of Congress. Right. Um you know, it's a new district. It's brand new. It didn't exist until last year. And it is, if anything, trending relative to the state toward Republicans. And so uh, there's a lot going on there. There's a competitive Republican primary, freshman Democrat looking to hold on in a in a changing district. That's a really interesting one. And then, of course, that Michigan 7 seat, one of, if not the most evenly divided district in the country, uh, that's also going to see uh, quite an interesting matchup uh, down the line as well. Yeah, Aaron, tell us where where is Michigan seven, and uh, is that the race that sticks out to you as as the big one, or what other race and toss up is is important to you? Yeah, I think uh, Michigan seven is interesting to me because it's the only actual open seat that's on this list right now. Now the Santos seat could also be open. Who knows what will happen with that? Jacob can tell you more about that race specifically. Um, but Michigan seven is kind of the only seat where. Neither party has the advantage of incumbency. You have um, two relatively similar, um, likely nominees on both sides. So Tom Barrett, a former state senator, is the likely Republican nominee. And then Curtis Hertel, another former state senator, is the likely Democratic nominee. These are both white men who are in their 40s, so that you already have like some similarities there. There's obviously biographical differences, but it's going to be um, kind of a, I think, really interesting test of um, at like the most fundamental level, which party this cycle ends up benefiting. Because like Jacob said, this is one of the most evenly divided districts in the country. Biden barely won it in 2020. Um, and Democrats expect that the presidential race is going to be close again here. They're not expecting Biden to automatically win this seat. Um and so it's going to be a really interesting race to watch. And geographically, I forgot to mention this earlier, this seat is right in the middle of Michigan. It's based in Lansing, the state capital. It's also got MSU. Um, and so there's a lot of um, just like different geographic factors of this district too that kind of make it a microcosm of the country. 
in one of the districts in 2022 where Democrats uh, boosted turnout college among college students uh, that they believe helped right. uh, push at the time Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin over the top. She's running for the Senate. That's why that that's why this is a that's why this is an open seat. Um, we have to talk about George Santos not just because he invented Congress. I'm not <laughs> sure if you all remember that, uh, but because of the circumstances, we have it in a toss up. But that is with the expectation that he is not going to be the nominee uh, in in 2024. Uh, but Jacob, tell you know, give a little bit more of uh, the landscape of what we think is going to happen in that district right now. So George Santos, of course, the embattled congressman from New York's third district, facing a whole litany of federal felony charges. Uh, he represents uh, the basically northern Nassau County uh, is the best way to describe this district with just a little bit of Queens. This is out on Long Island. Um, uh, look, the, 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 there are a number of different ways that uh, this district could play out over the next 14 months. Right. uh, Santos is currently uh, facing charges. If he cuts a plea deal and resigns from Congress, and and, and that's often part of plea deals that members of Congress cut in these uh, these legal cases, as long as he does that before July of next year, there will be a special election to uh, fill that seat out on Long Island. Um, in, In that case, New York law actually provides that the local party leaders are the ones who select the party nominees. There's not a primary election to select the nominees for a special election. Um, and, and what we've heard from our sources is that on the Democratic side, at least, the Nassau County uh, Democratic Party chair, Jay Jacobs, who is also the state party chair, is probably going to pick former Congressman Tom Swazi, uh, who held this seat uh, from 2016 until last year when he ran for governor. He's not currently running for this seat, but it's kind of an open secret that he wants to be back in Congress. Um, On the Republican side, it's a much more open uh, picture. There are a number of different candidates in the mix. Some of the biggest names have actually taken themselves out of contention. State Senator Jack Martins, uh, Nassau County Executive um, Bruce Blakeman have both said they're not interested, but there are a couple other names out there that are floating around. Uh, There's a retired NYPD detective who's impressed local party leaders there. Um, So that's what happens in in the event of a special election. Uh, If Santos does not resign or if he resigns uh, or if he resigns after July, uh, then there's no special election. New York Mm -hmm. law says it's too late. The seat remains vacant until the fall. if he runs again, he'll face a primary challenge from uh, that NYPD detective, Mike Sapriconi, as well as uh, a Navy veteran and, uh, no, excuse me, Air Force veteran and uh, J.P. Morgan executive named Kellen Curry. Um, there's a financial planner who's in the race. There's uh, a number of other kind of local figures who are uh, either in or thinking of running against Santos. Um, this is an incredibly unpopular politician, George Santos. People in the district do not like him. They feel like they were hoodwinked. He's not going to win a primary if he runs. Um, so so either way, uh, he's not going to be on the ballot in 2024. And, and uh, Republicans will have a chance with a different candidate to try and maintain their hold on the district. You know, they hope that the crime issues and especially the the uh, influx of migrants into New York City that's captured so much local media attention there uh, will be enough to propel them to another set of upset victories 
uh, in the third district and and in the fourth district to the south. As opposed to Santos, even. Oh, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. (laughs) No, no, go, go. Okay. Um, I don't know if I can do it. I was going to make a joke about crime and Santos's legal troubles. Uh, (laughs) Um, (laughs) That's all right. Try it. uh, (laughs) I don't know if I can now. (laughs) I I lost exactly (laughs) what I was going to say. I think. Uh, I mean, look. I think that'll be the that'll be the Democratic rejoinder. It's like, oh, you you say you're, uh, you know, uh, tough on crime, yet here are five photos of you campaigning with George Santos when he ran either in 2022 or he was also the Republican nominee for this district in 2020. I think Democrats right. are going to, uh, especially in a special election, right? If they um, they are going to try and leverage the shadow of Santos uh, over any Republican who's on the ballot here. Yeah, which crimes are going to be front and center of this race? We'll see. Exactly. <laughs> and Santos interrupted your life, Jacob, right? Jacob, you were giving a talk on the Hill uh, not too long ago, and there was all the, what, the commotion outside in the hallway, and it ended up that it was just the the media scrum or the the entourage that follows George Santos everywhere, everywhere uh, around the Capitol capital complex these days. Um, to me, the race, my Oregon bias is going to show again uh, that the, uh, the race that we have in toss-up, uh, Oregon's 5th District, where Republican Congresswoman Lori Chavez de Reamer is running for re-election. Uh, it's a Willamette Valley, Portland suburbs, within stretches all the way into Central Oregon to Bend and Redmond, uh, the kind of the population boom there. Uh, this is a district that Biden uh, Biden carried in 2020, but Republicans actually did well in, in the midterm elections. It almost helped uh, elect the first Republican governor of Oregon in 40 years. And so Democrats believe there's going to be a bounce back there. The question is, by what margin would Biden win this district? And is it enough to get a Democrat over the top against the congresswoman? And Democrats have to sort through this primary between Jamie McLeod Skinner, who uh, Defeated an incumbent, incumbent Kurt Schrader in the in the primary, but then needed, uh, but then uh, Schrader turned his back on her, was vocally against her. Uh, the National Party did not invest money, and she still almost won the race. Uh, but now there's a, a couple other candidates in the race, and so a couple other Democrats running against her. A lot of moving parts, but I think this district will tell us a lot about what's happening. Not only how Democrats navigate primaries and handle races, but also is there a bounce back in some of these blue states uh, that boosts Democrats and could help them get over the top in the, in the majority. Uh, we also made 10 rating changes in our recent issue of inside elections. Uh, Aaron, I'll start with you on which of those 10, we're not going to run down all 10 of these. Our, our subscribers already got them. Uh, other, other folks, you could try to check those out. Uh, pieces of them online. But Aaron, which of those 10 do you think is either most significant or maybe what was the most controversial one that we had to, we, that we fought about internally before we went forward? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think two of the ones that were um, some of the, two of the obvious changes that we made that we were kind of on the fence about last time were Texas 28 and Florida 23, um, which probably mean nothing to you unless you um, study these districts closely. But Texas 28 um, is the one represented by Henry Cuellar, who is a fairly well-known figure. He is probably the most conservative Democrat 
in Congress right now. He's faced um, some high profile primary challengers over the past couple of cycles. Um, but we had this rated as likely Democratic because last cycle, there was a lot of Republican enthusiasm about potentially flipping um, some South Texas congressional seats. They ended up flipping one of them, but the other two, the Democratic incumbents running there, did quite well. Um, Cuellar won by double digits. It was like the high double digits too. And so it really wasn't a competitive race after all. And he narrowly survived his primary challenge as well, um, obviously. And so we had that at likely Democratic. We moved that to solid Democratic because right now this district is not even on Republicans' official target list. Um, and they really have not found a serious challenger here. He also doesn't have a serious primary challenge this cycle. Um, and he has really shown an ability to um, connect with this district in a way um, that I think a lot of folks were surprised by last cycle, both on both sides who thought that they could take him down. He also has some of his own legal troubles, potentially. The FBI raided his house last year. So there's just a lot of interesting facets here. But despite all of that, we are moving this off the chart into solid Democratic territory for now, unless something significant changes. Um, and we did a similar thing with Florida's 23rd district. We move that from likely Democratic to solid Democratic. Um, some of these Florida races have been particularly difficult to handicap for me because 2022 was such a good year for Republicans. Um, DeSantis and Rubio won by double digits. Um, and there were a lot of races that on paper should have been competitive, but were not that competitive and Republicans did very well in. I think that Florida is obviously trending towards Republicans. Um, and Republicans are favored to win there at the presidential level, and they're favored to win the Senate race next year. But we're probably not going to be, see the kind of overperformance that we saw in 2022. And so even though the um, Democratic nominee in Florida's 23rd district only won this race by five points last cycle, he really doesn't face any serious Republican challengers right now, and he should be in a much better position in a presidential year. So we have that moved from likely Democratic to solid Democratic. And to give everyone a little peek behind the scenes as we do our ratings, you know, we are talking with uh, Republicans and Democrats, and it's good to know what, what races they're focused on. Uh, and for example, Florida 23 right now, Republicans are not focused on it. So that doesn't mean that Republicans can't win, yeah. but it's an indication that it's not going to get the money, the time and the attention that is often needed in order to win a race. And so that is one of the things that we take into account when we're rating races. But Jacob, out of the 10 uh, rating changes that we recently made, what was the one that uh, still sticks out to you? Or is there one that you, that we, that we all fought about that we're not, that we're not, that we're not willing to admit until now live on this podcast. I mean, I think Montana <laughs> no. one sparked a lot of debate. <laughs> yeah. I, I think though, that was one of the two that I was going to point out the Montana's first district we had rated as likely Republican. We moved it to lean Republican. That's a shift in Democrats favor. Incumbent Ryan Zinke uh, has a lot of baggage. He's got, uh, and, and, uh, especially he's got kind of um, nonpartisan baggage, I think is the best way to think about it. It's not necessarily like your traditional like, oh, Democrats really hate this thing about him, but Republicans are fine with him. Um, you know, there are there are things uh, about him and his record that that voters in the district just don't really like. And so uh, we saw him win a much closer uh, than 
perhaps anticipated victory last cycle, just about three points against Democrat Monica Trinnell, both candidates under 50% uh, in this district that Trump would have carried by uh, seven points in, in the 2020 election. Uh, Trinnell is back for a rematch. Democrats are uh, focused on this race now in a way that they weren't last cycle. Uh, perhaps the best thing Trinnell has going for her is that, uh, well, A, she's running against Ryan Zinke again. He's not running for Senate. Um, which was uh, a potential at the beginning of this cycle, but B, that she gets to share the ticket with Senator John Tester, the Democratic incumbent, up for re-election statewide in Montana. Uh, now, we have that race rated as a toss-up, uh, but what that means is that in this district, which is the more Democratic leading of the two Montana seats, uh, John Tester is going to win here. Uh, if he wants to win statewide, he probably has to win this district by double digits. And so uh, the, the amount of investment that he's going to put in here, especially on some Native American reservations where Trinnell really struggled last cycle uh, should do uh, at least a little bit to boost her own campaign. Uh, whether it's enough to get her across the finish line, I think that's still uh, an open question. We still see Zinke as the favorite here, but clearly more of a lean Republican race than a likely Republican. And Trump's the other one. Yeah, I mean, tr tr Trump is still going to win this district, um, you know, by how much I think is you know, if he wins it by anywhere from four to eight or nine points, I wouldn't be surprised. I think that there, you know, the, the tremendous amount of growth in Western Montana, the California transplants, people coming in from elsewhere, people with education and a lot of money are making this district ever so slightly more favorable to Democrats. Um, uh, historically, it's also been kind of the hub of Democratic activity in Montana. Uh, so she'll have to outperform Trump certainly, or outperform Biden. Uh, but I think Zinke, Zinke's own difficulties mean that there are going to be some Trump voters who aren't going to really want to, to deal with him. Um, you know, the uh, other and, district... Oh, well, sorry, and I was going to say, and Monica Trinell, a former Olympic rower, uh, and next summer we will have the Olympics. Well, we meaning that they will take place in Paris. Uh, uh, and so I don't know, maybe she can get a boost out of the attention on the Olympics and in her in her background. Yeah, we'll see, though, Nathan, as you've as you've written, I think maybe multiple times, uh, the track record for former Olympians isn't always the strongest when it comes to uh, running for Congress, at least. Would you say she's rowing against the trend of Olympi <laughs> Olympians running for Congress? Mm, um, maybe. Uh, maybe. <laughs> there we go. That's the, those All are right. the groans that I was hoping that I was I was hoping for. Uh, and a, a couple of changes that we made in favor of uh, in favor of Republicans. Uh, well, there was there was the Montana district, also New Jersey Congressman uh, Tom Kane Jr. Uh, we had that in a toss up. Uh, that we, and we moved it to tilting Republican, which is just outside, uh, just one category outside of that. And also Oregon's fourth district where Democratic Congresswoman Val Hoyle uh, is um, involved or dealing with a flurry of, of headlines with regard to her tenure uh, as labor commissioner and uh, various things. You can read in the newsletter more about that. Aaron included more more details uh, on that. But that is we took that from solid Democratic to likely Democratic, which is uh, more vulnerable. It's now what we would call officially on the House battleground map. There's one key challenge that Republicans have. They need a candidate. <laughs> they have a scenario right now where they think she's vulnerable, but they need they need a candidate. Uh, they need a candidate to defeat her. Um, one race that 
we haven't talked about that uh, isn't on our isn't a toss up and isn't in our list of changes is Maine's second district where Republicans are excited about their new challenger. The pride of Fort Kent, Maine, Austin, Terrio. This is a real treat for me, a Maine native, Austin Terrio making his debut in the Nationwide Series. I'm excited. Um, it, it's it's a dream come true. His NASCAR Nationwide Series debut. Austin Terrio, pretty impressive, running a limited schedule. He's worked hard to get where he's at, and the whole state has rallied behind him. Austin Terrio looks to make his mark here today. Jacob, where is Maine's second district, and why are Republicans so excited about Austin Terrio? Maine's second district, Nathan, is all of northern Maine. It's really most of Maine geographically, but um, you know there's a small slice of uh, populated area uh, at the bottom of the state that encompasses the first district, and then pretty much everything north of that um, is the second district all the way up to the Canadian border, um, which is where Austin Tirio, the Republican uh, former NASCAR driver and current state representative lives. Uh, he grew up uh, right along the Canadian border in the uppermost reaches uh, of Maine. He is French Canadian, as you might expect uh, from his name, Terrio. Um, <laughs> and... I wasn't even going to try that. Jacob. I, uh, you did. You did uh, I don't think I that qualifies as me trying it either. Um, <laughs> I was channeling Ricky Bobby, but uh, he look, uh, Jared Golden has had a really strong grip on this district since he wrested it from Bruce Poliquin back in 2018. Uh, Golden's vibe, his image, uh, he is a tatted up uh, Marine veteran who uh, worked for Susan Collins, the Republican senator from Maine, uh, before getting elected in his own right to uh, the state assembly and then uh, later to Congress. Uh, he ran an ad last year where he cracked a lobster with his bare hands. Um, he He's just a really good fit for the district. And uh, the candidates Republicans have run against him have not necessarily had that same uh, kind of appeal to voters separate and apart from their politics, uh, because this is a Republican leaning district, um, w w which is why Republican strategists are excited about Tyrio, uh, both because he um, you know, comes from a part of the state that uh, Republicans haven't picked their nominee from before uh, up up in that uh, northern Maine kind of uh, area. Uh, also because he's young, he's only 29. Um, he was just elected to the state house last year, and he's got this interesting background as a race car driver, right? He started in the on the very local circuit, kind of worked his way up through New England and eventually uh, raced in, in not the top NASCAR series, uh, but the second uh, highest uh, cup series in, in NASCAR um, before he transitioned to, to politics. So uh, it's a different profile than Bruce Poliquin, of course, who was a, a money manager, Dale Crafts, who was the local state representative who uh, ran against uh, Golden in 2020 and, and lost. Um, and, and Republicans think that they uh, might have a shot with a different kind of candidate uh, this time around. And Aaron, I noticed that when you were talking about Michigan and you mentioned two dudes in their 40s that you didn't say that they were young, but Jacob said at 29 that uh, Terry was young. So, uh, but I, I'm not going to be offended. I think that's factually I'm gonna, accurate. 
Oh man! All right, all right. Um, and I, when uh, when Republicans unveiled uh, Austin as, as their candidate, my first question was, does he have tattoos? Because you know, in his ads, Jacob, you mentioned one of his yeah. ads, but in his ads, he seems to strategically always have his long sleeves sort of rolled up to uh, to demonstrate uh, to demonstrate those uh, that he's not a normal you know that he's not a normal politician. Uh, in any way. And he's, we have this he's a, race. He's a cool congressman. Yeah. He's not a normal <laughs> congressman. He's a cool there you congressman. Go. So I don't well, know if, they, if there's a tattoo parlor uh, at the NRCC that they're going to be utilizing or not. Well, look, he just needs to call up Eli Crane's guy, uh, Congressman Crane from Arizona's second district in his launch video. Uh, he also he already had uh, several tattoos, but his launch video featured him getting uh, another tattoo on camera. Um, while talking about why he was running for Congress. So He's, maybe uh, Tyrio can take some inspiration. Yeah, notably, none of these people are running where my parents live. That's obviously <laughs> not an asset. They would not win their votes. Yeah. They're, they're part of the anti-tattoo, yeah. anti-tattoo pack. Very interesting. Yeah, and this is the type of district where, uh, or I wouldn't be surprised maybe if some Democrat or some Republicans uh, are wanting would give to a golden U.S. Senate campaign uh, so that they could get him out of the second district and then an open seat, which Republicans would have a, a much better chance uh, in, an, in an open seat there. Uh, but we're going to be, uh, unlike some outlets that focus maybe too much on the presidential race, uh, we're going to be focused on uh, the House and the Senate as well. So there'll be a lot more to come on this on the fight for the House in the next year plus. And finally, our last segment, Look What I Found, where we highlight something that we stumbled across. It could be politics, sports, pop culture, food. It could be anything. Uh, Jacob, what did you find? So I was in New Haven, Connecticut this past weekend, and I had a great lunch at a local pizza place called Ernie's Pizzeria in Westville. It's been around since the 70s, and the owner... Pat, he makes every single pizza that goes through there uh, by hand. He's the only one who uh, makes the pies. Um, they're delicious. They do a, a white birch beer as well, which I've never had before uh, uh, as a drink. And uh, it went perfectly with uh, a slice of pizza or three or four. Have you ever seen Mystic Pizza, Jacob? I have. I have seen Mystic Pizza a while ago. And I've also seen the 30 Rock episode um, where Jenna Maroney <laughs> stars in the Broadway musical adaptation of Mystic Pizza as well. It sounds like you're uh, living in Mystic equal, Pizza. <laughs> both hold equal weight in my mind. Yeah. Yeah. And where and where is what district is that? Uh, this is Connecticut's third district. It is represented by a longtime congresswoman, Rosa DeLauro. Um who uh, I believe was was chairwoman of the House Appropriations Committee last last time when Democrats had the majority. So a very important figure in, in Democratic politics in the House. There you go. Aaron, what did you find? So I found a new word game. It's called Connections. It's on the New York Times Games app. This is not sponsored. <laughs> um, but I've been playing it like every morning for the past couple of weeks. It's like the new Wordle for me. It's nice because it's like, slightly more challenging than Wordle, but it's not like a full crossword puzzle, so it doesn't take too much time. And basically, the premise is the game code names. if you've ever played that, where you're making like word associations between groups of words, except it's like a solo game. Um, but it's a lot of fun. I'd recommend it. I love having a new hyperfixation. 
that's a fun little word game that only takes up like 10 minutes of my time. So. And it feels like people don't feel compelled to tell us the results of their connections. Like they do Wor- Wordle. I feel oh, like I'm that, telling that people you, you, just not oh, online. Okay. And are you the best of your friend group at Wordle uh, at connections? You know, it depends on the day and our knowledge bases. It varies widely. <laughs> And Jacob, are you are you in on connections yet? I play it intermittently. I find it very frustrating. Um, as Aaron <laughs> said, it's it's tougher than Wordle. I still am a, a devoted Wordler, but connections is um, it can get on my nerves sometimes. I, I often kind of quibble with the the specific categories. I think that there's there's too much leeway, uh, but that's of course the point of the game that you've got to see the full picture uh, when you're when you're doing it. Well, I found uh, more from my parents' house. I found some old concert show flyers uh, from my college days in in Orange County. Uh, This one, though, uh, the band Zayo, Training for Utopia, Spitfire, Silver Rocket Revolver. Uh, If you are listening to this podcast and you've heard of any of those bands, you should email me because we should probably be (laughs) friends. But what stuck out to me is... This show was $5, $5. Now it was at a place called Coos Cafe, which is just, it was a, a, a vacant house and bands played in the living room and it was a little loud. That's probably why I can't hear, but $5, that's not even, you can't even go to a concert now and the service charge is more, is way more than $5. So I thought that was, uh, I thought that was pretty, pretty remarkable back in the day. And it wasn't in the civil war era. <laughs> <laughs> that we were that was going to be it was probably 1997 <laughs> did you did you spend a lot of time in vacant houses in your college years oh, at coos cafe <laughs> i did but that was if that was if that's the most trouble i was getting into was going to shows and uh at uh at coos then uh i think i turned out I turned out best and i should say i believe that is luke correa's district now california's 46th district uh which i was not aware of at the time <laughs> i was too busy going to shows not really reading the almanac of american politics or, or anything like that was uh was was correa there back then as well or who i you know i have no idea i mean <laughs> I, I at least i was not uh he could have been i don't even know if he was in the state state legislature uh, back then, but it, that was not a focus. I didn't even, it wasn't until a few years later that I even caught the, caught the political bug. It was all about, uh, all about concerts, uh, concerts and trying to get some decent grades. That's all the time we have. We broke down the fight for the house majority, including the toss up races, race rating changes, and an intriguing Republican challenger in Maine who is looking to pick up speed against one of Democrats toughest incumbents. Thank you for joining us. At Inside Elections, we provide nonpartisan analysis of congressional, presidential, and gubernatorial races. With a combination of reporting and data, we break down the key races and bring valuable context to complex elections. Please go to InsideElections.com, subscribe to our biweekly newsletter. We've got individual subscriptions as well as group packages that are tailor-made for association and corporate PACs. If you like this episode, please do all the things you're supposed to do. Subscribe, comment, tell your friends, uh, give us a rating on your favorite platform. If you're watching on YouTube, hit the thumbs up button. I'll also leave a comment there. If you didn't like today's episode, please email Dale Earnhardt Jr. 
Uh, we also wanted to thank our producers, Alan Tazinski and Melissa Lenner of Pretty Easy Podcasts and our associate producer, Conrad Tolosa. Please come back and join us again next time.